Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic, too. And for the purposes of this podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. It's a name I came up with for myself at one point, I think. Yep, and it, somehow it, it caught and it, on. And that, that was the one that got a little I, bit of traction. I've never had a nickname I've actually suggested for myself ever catch on. Mm. And you not only did it, you <laughs> did it with Rockmeister McCool. I'm so jealous. But anyway, uh, and I, I come up with nicknames for other people all the time. When I mail them Amazon packages, I yeah, give everybody you, a fake middle name yeah, you just so me, they know it's from me. Whitney, Whitney got mm. me a birthday present, by the way. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're Again. quite welcome. But uh, he, had, he had it shipped directly to me, and mm. it was sent to William Death Fist <laughs> Bibiani. And I thought that was mm. pretty cool. Yeah, my sister's middle name is Shark Destroyer. Um, nice. uh, I have a nephew. I think he's Lord High Chancellor. Nice. Well, in any case, this is the podcast where you email us. Uh, we have an email address. It's letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, people email us with uh, questions, uh, requests, uh, sometimes criticisms. We're open to hearing it all and talking yeah. to you and having a conversation about all of it. Yeah, we're not perfect, uh, but uh, you know, we, like, we love having a conversation with you. We don't want this to just be us out here. We want to invite everybody in uh, to the world of critically acclaimed. So we don't like to dilly-dally at the beginning of the episode. We just like to uh, uh, jump right in. And right. so uh, here we go. Whitney, uh, tell us uh, about our first email. <laughs> Here's a letter from uh, Ray. Hi, Ray. Uh, hello, Ray. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I've been listening to you regularly for the last year or so, and I wanted to thank you, as so many others have, for giving us something to look forward to through the hellish year that was our first year of the pandemic. First year oh, makes God. it sound, oh my God, makes it sound so oh, hard, doesn't it? Like, why, how many will there be? No. As, this is the first of... Surely it's going to start 26, down, 27 right? years. Oh, Jesus Christ. People are getting shots. We're, God help we're, us. There's, still in the tunnel, but there's light at the end. Right. Um, I also wanted uh, to say thank you for being aware and open to the need uh, to learn and to address topics of experiences you're unfamiliar with, uh, e.g. gender identities, disability, etc. Yeah. It makes your podcast feel more, uh, much more relatable and worthwhile than many of the other film reviewers I've listened to, where I'm often left frustrated at the discussion which completely ignores major issues. That is, critics glossing over the autistic community's justifiably angry reaction to Saya's film music, mm. if not ignoring it completely. I haven't we seen that yeah, yet. Yeah, we didn't get to see it. I've, yeah. I've heard the horror stories. Yeah, I, every clip I've seen scene mm. makes it seem like this is at the very least of yeah it, it, it seems like a like it it's not well handled mm. at all and uh, that's the unfortunate mm. i haven't seen it yet though yeah. so i i cannot speak to it beyond the impression that i've got mm. and the many people who have written about it mm. who have seen it who have said this is a terrible mm. case of representation either uh, way thank look, you so much we're trying we're, uh, we're, we're yeah that. trying yeah. to just to, to have have those conversations and yeah. stay open to them I mean, While acknowledging uh, that I mean, we only know so much about yeah. some of these topics from personal I can, experience. I can say that Hollywood has an incredibly bad track record when it comes to dealing with people with uh, mental disabilities. Yes. Uh, very, very bad. And by, mm. I don't, we don't mean historically like recently. Yeah. Like music, mm. uh, apparently, but also uh, even something like mm. The like, Predator, which argued that mm. uh, autism was actually like a cool superpower. Mm. And it's like, that's also really reductive and yeah. that's 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 also crap and there's a whole there's a long list of really awful yeah. movies yeah don't 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 pick out the other sister uh, or anything uh, 
Yeah, yeah they, they were bad at the time and they didn't age it any any better. Yeah. Anyway, uh, continuing. I often don't have enough energy for things like letter writing due to being severely chronically ill, but I wanted to finally get something to, out to you even if I could, uh, couldn't come up with a particularly clever question. I'll just ask something simple. Mm. Do either of you manage to make much time between the massive amount of podcasts you do? Thank you. Uh, specifically for film festival viewing. Uh, either in person, pre-pandemic, or the wonderfully accessible online viewing a lot of festivals have done lately. I love the local film festival here, notably Calgary International Film Festival and the Calgary Underground Film Festival, Mm. and hope they'll continue to offer some online viewing even after the pandemic as I can continue to enjoy these films with my declining health, which is preventing in-person attendance more and more. Uh, To close, I'll just uh, toss two favorites out there that I've seen at CIFF and CUFF in recent years. And I uh, think more people need to see one is called Dave made a maze from 2017 directed by Bill Watterson starring Nick Thune, Bill Watterson, not Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson. I can't imagine. Probably not. And the outside story 2020 directed by uh, Casimir Noskovsky starring Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, thank you for all you do. All my love Ray uh, film festivals. Uh, I feel like such a, an uncool kid when it comes to film festivals because I'm never up on like all my applications. Mm-hmm. I've never uh, worked for an outlet that has specifically uh, asked, like assigned it to me or asked me to go. And that's you, uh, to, you've covered the LA film festival. once. Or I've, twice, co- I've covered the LA fi- okay. film festival, I think three times, Yeah, but I've never gotten to go to like Sundance or, yeah. or, uh, or Toronto or, or God forbid can so, um, South by. Yeah. I've never even been to South by. Yeah. The LA film festival is where it's at because it's here. I can't afford to go to those places. <laughs> I can't take the time off of work. I've never been in a position where I've been able to go to a festival and just hole up. And they moved online, but I'm still so far out of the loop that I haven't been able to apply for any of the credentials I would need to attend these festivals. And I still can't afford to go because sometimes the tickets are still pretty expensive. They're super expensive. And even if you can get, like, say, a press pass... Mm-hmm. Uh, which means you don't have to pay for the actual tickets themselves. You're still usually on the hook for travel and room and board, unless you're lucky enough to be working for an outlet that will pay for such things. Yeah. Uh, I have had the I have been fortunate enough to have sometimes worked at an outlet that mm-hmm. I have, have sent me to some film festivals. I've been to Sundance. I'm trying to think three or four times. Uh, I've been to Toronto at least two or three times. I've been to South by Southwest two or three times. Uh, those are the big ones mm-hmm. that I've been to. I've never been to Cannes or um, uh, Telluride or some of those others. But um, and I've covered a few at home, mm-hmm. uh, Beyond Fest, LA Film Festival, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, oh, I've gone to screenings at Outfest before. So. Oh yeah, I've, I've been to Outfest as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, shout out to Alonzo Duralde, who's been a programmer there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, his uh, his podcast. Uh, uh, linoleum knife with Dave White is one of the templates on which we it's, have based it, everything it, we do. It is certainly indispensable. Yeah. Alonso Duralde and Dave White are brilliant critics, and they're really, really nice people, mm-hmm. and I'll always support them. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love festivals. I've I've always mm-hmm. loved festivals. Um, it's really, really cool to, especially if you get to go geographically. Online is a good way to do it, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to start seeing a bit more. Of that, even after uh, you know the pandemic subsides, yeah, uh, a lot of people you know want them to be like, hey, why can't we all get tickets to see these film festival films? And I'm like, well, a lot of films at, are trying to find distribution at film festivals, so they don't want to just 
let everyone see it now. Mm. So it's got to have some exclusivity, but also we don't want to like shut out too much of the press because there's a lot of sometimes I I don't know how intentional it is, but like there's been, there's some gatekeeping in the press where it's easier for people from some outlets or for people for some, uh, for Mm. some critics to get in than others. And that's always been bullshit. Um, so I think there's work to be done there, and hopefully this can mitigate it if we find like the right way to do it. Um, but uh, if you're in, geographically there, it's really really cool because you're in like this small community. It's like usually they're within a f- you know one small town's worth, or like ten square blocks or something is where yeah. all these film festivals and all these film screenings are being held, and everyone in town is talking about the same thing. Everyone in town is buzzing about this new movie that they saw or mm-hmm. uh, this incredible word of mouth that we're getting about something or this. It's just. It's really infectious, actually. It's really, really cool to be part of like a mini almost flash community. Like it's really brief uh, that where everyone is interested in the same shit and everyone's super excited about it. And that part's really, really great. South by Southwest is also really cool because it's also a simultaneous music festival. So there's a lot of great bar shows and everything mm. going on at the same time. And that's also super cool. Um, I've seen a lot of amazing movies at festivals, most of which ended up coming out. Um, what, I, uh, what I understand about festivals is, yeah. uh, and this is, I've heard particularly true of Sundance, but it's true of any festival, is uh, the atmosphere is very heightened. Everyone's, yeah. a, everyone's a little high. Uh, on, at, least on high, just, at least high in the energy in the room, if, yeah, not, if and, not the altitude, which is the which, case in Sundance. <laughs> which means that uh, reactions are going to be a far more dramatic to a lot of these films. And, uh, you know, I, you re- referenced recently how there was, um, you know, films will debut at Cannes and people will give it like 20 minute standing ovations. Uh-huh, which it's always like, feels hyperbolic to me. But like, it's, I, I've I, seen, I like, I don't think I've loved any, anything that much in my whole life. <laughs> It's like a, you wouldn't even give your own wedding a standing ovation. Yeah, it's like that no, line, yeah, it's like okay, great. I had a wedding that was wonderful. I'll clap for my own wedding, you know. The, yeah, but not the, for the, twenty the, minutes. The concept of pizza, I'd give up after ten. You know, it's <laughs> clearly people are, go a little mad at these festivals, and yeah. uh, you know, they in terms of their effusive praise and their effusive damnation of certain. Yeah, things. there's a lot of films I've seen mm. that have that have played at film festivals that mm. got an unfair amount of scorn. And sometimes there have been movies that have played at film festivals where I, I, you see the film and you're like, why? And you realize that in some cases it's a matter of, you know, just sort of everyone's mood and everyone's like opinion getting amplified by everyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. Where if everyone else agrees that a thing is cool, it doesn't suddenly seem like just a cool movie you saw. It feels like a happening. Yeah. And that's a, that's a danger. That's something that critics should, of course, be uh, aware of and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be an issue. It's also a matter of sometimes when you're at a film festival, you're seeing like 20 films over the course of a week mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And that's cool. I've done that. Uh, but the movies that stand out aren't necessarily always the best. They're sometimes the ones that are just the most different from what you've recently seen. Mm-hmm. And if the people, and when that movie finally comes out in a very different film going environment, it might not pop the way it did before because yeah. oh I, I I all I had seen for days was like a whole bunch of like weepy biopics. So this one like really zany horror mm. comedy was exactly what we needed. <laughs> yes. 
at as Sundance. An ant- antidote for all the other stuff. Yeah, but when you just see it in a vacuum because you're interested in zany horror comedies, it might not be the best one ever. There's a danger to it. There's always a danger to it. And it's, um, you know, something that critics, I, again, I, I've noticed it. I've seen, I've seen it. I'm sure I've been a part of it. And um, you got to be careful. Mm-hmm. You got to try to always question. But regardless, film festivals are cool. I'm going to say it right now. They're not always, some are handled better than others. Mm. Some are, some are uh, curated better than others. Some are organized better than others. That's all true. But a whole, like a whole like condensed space where all of the movies are new or occasionally they'll screen some older ones, but it's usually because like the filmmaker is in attendance and we're going to do a Q and a with George Miller after the road warrior, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, that's exciting. It's really fun, and I highly recommend, whether you get to go to a big one or a small one, that if you have the means, if you have the opportunity, you should check it out. Because it's really, if you love movies, it's like this condensed movie sensational experience in like a really tight amount of time. It's like a little bubble of film enthusiasm. (laughs) And it's fun to live in that bubble for a little bit and then eventually mm. you got to pop it and go about your day but um yeah i've had a lot of fun at various film festivals and i highly recommend them okay maybe i'll go someday <laughs> my 80th birthday i'll go to my first film my, festival. my favorite is toronto just because it's the it's the best organized one i've ever been to like oh, okay. consistently yeah. everything's timed out really well most things are pretty centrally located it's uh Mm. pretty good crowd and community um you get a lot of good combination of like big movies everyone's excited about a bunch of little ones and Mm. it's late enough in the year that some of the films from earlier festivals that you missed or haven't been released yet are still playing so it's a really really good uh Mm. that's probably my favorite i'll I'll say this at the la film festival they had a, a series of midnight movies that they would actually show at midnight yeah and uh i saw a film that actually never got a proper release but it was really exciting it was called hot chicks and it was an anthology film, uh, and each short was based on a comic strip written by Jack T. Chick. Oh, that's an the, awesome the, idea. Uh, the ultra, like, super uh, fringy Christian uh, cult leader, I guess. Yeah, he's, look, look he's up a the, cartoonist. Look up, look up, look up Jack T. Yeah. Chick, and yeah, yeah, God's cartoonist. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people took, because the, of the way they're drawn, they kind of play like storyboards anyway. Yeah. So people would just make films based on those little comic strips. Yeah, little, little Christian propaganda and, yeah. comic strips. Yeah. And, and of course, they were all skewering the work of Jack T. Chick. They were all, you know, very, very snarky. I wonder if it's a rights uh, issue. I wonder if they actually weren't allowed to do that. Maybe that was the issue. Uh, maybe so. Uh, yeah. It's entirely possible. I'm guessing they didn't ask Jack T. Chick. Perhaps not. Uh, uh He's still alive. I think he's like 98 or something. Really? I didn't know. Um, Yeah. Uh, And Jack T. Chick had all of these really wild, fringy ideas about the way Christianity ought to operate. And uh, there was a lot of anti-gay propaganda. Uh, And of course, and and of course, of of course, the anti-gay propaganda were turned into like some of the gayest things you've ever seen. Good. Uh, And yeah, and and rightly so. Um, (laughs) So you can sometimes find these really obscure gems here and there. But uh, thank you for writing. Thank Mm. you. uh, Thank you for your support. And uh, we're glad we can be here for you. Hope you enjoyed uh, uh, the letter yeah, and, and everything, and, and yeah, yeah thank you. And enjoy the online film festivals. I'm glad that they're finally accessible. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, uh, accessibility has been an issue at a lot of film festivals. Uh, I will read another letter. Yeah. Uh, this comes from the Gorilla Walrus Ninja. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Rock, Rocky Horror McCool. I've been watching Federico Fellini films. 
on the Criterion channel and I watched eight and a half over the weekend. This is the one I have been building up to, as I've been told in film class and many other places that it is one of the greatest films ever made. It didn't really work for me. It felt like I was anticipating something special to arrive and it never came. I am going to try to watch it again, thinking maybe I didn't really get it the first time. What are you guys' thoughts on eight and a half? Is there something I'm missing? Maybe your knowledge will help me get more out of the film to understand why it's so great. Thank you, uh, the Girl of Walrus Ninja. You either emailed the right critics or the wrong critics if you want to talk about Eight and a Half, because Eight and a Half is a movie that is often celebrated. It makes a lot of lists of the best movies ever made. Uh, it's a film by, if you haven't seen it, it's filmed by Federico Fellini, and it is semi-autobiographical, and it is about uh, a famous and very successful uh, filmmaker who uh, is trying to figure out his next movie and uh, is sort of wallowing in his relationships, current and past, uh, with the various women in his life. It is called Eight and a Half, not because of anything that has to do with the movie, uh, but because it was Fellini's eight and a half movie. He had made eight, eight film or no, seven, seven fil- films, seven films in a short, three shorts. Yeah. Oh, it's like seven films and three shorts. I think that's what it is. Or mm. six and four, but regardless. Um, and, uh, it is, I will say this. I'm going to, I'm going to start positive. Mm. I think eight and a half is spectacularly photographed. I think there's this really amazing dream sequence at the beginning where the protagonist views himself as sort of like as a balloon hanging over the world. Mm. And it's really an exciting introduction and it's really, really cool. Uh, it is also easily like the the snootiest, most self-absorbed <laughs> art house movie I think I've ever seen in my entire life to the point where I have trouble taking it seriously. Uh, I really am not a fan, honestly. It's, it's been a while since I've seen Eight and a Half. And it's not that I don't get it. It's that I don't like it. Uh, yeah. It's it's that um, this is... Uh, and this was what... Fellini did this a lot. Most of his films are autobiographical in some way. And mm. Eight and a Half is pretty aggressively autobiographical. And it's it's this kind of cinema where it's uh, what in literature is called psychological realism and that uh, the stream of consciousness, the way your mind, your thoughts connect kind of randomly to one another is actually a lot more genuine of uh, a portrait of what's inside your brain than something that's a little bit more cogent or understandable. Uh, so Eight and a Half is a, a little peek into Federico Fellini's mind, and uh, we're meant to respond to A, the honesty, and B, a lot of just sort of his own obsessions. Yeah. Uh, his obsessions include uh, sex, uh, and that's kind of it. Um, and, and also women. So women, uh, w- w- really gigantic, uh, busty women. He was very Russ Meyerish, and like he was very particular about his fetishes. He just put them right there on the screen. Uh, and also, uh, like circuses, that's a big uh, recurring motif in a lot of his films. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a vibe. Yeah, um, that kind of semi-surreal confessional cinema mm. uh, is not common, and it especially wasn't common at the time. It was actually something kind of daring and new when it first came out. Uh, that it was something that was kind of emotionally relatable, but also really kind of surreal, uh, I guess took a lot of audiences by surprise and it became a cinema classic almost immediately. It's certainly novel. It's certainly novel. It's certainly interesting in its approach. I, when it comes to that kind of a weird psychological underpinnings, give me Bunuel any day of the week. <laughs> Louis Bunuel like actually had a political point to most of his movies. I don't disagree at all. Yeah. Uh, um, but eight and a half is one that I haven't revisited in a little while uh, because I just disliked it so strongly. It felt yeah. 
a little too opaque, a little too self-indulgent. After a while, it made me start to ask, why should I find this Fellini guy interesting? Yeah, and that's obviously not... I I should have greater context for who Fellini is before I can get deep into his mind. It would be one thing if the film were sort of sort of unflinchingly honest Mm. uh, and actually is Fellini like opening up about his very many flaws. It doesn't really feel like it's about that though. It actually ends up feeling like it's about his greatness Mm. and even the things that he is sad about or the things that get in the way of his art are presented in this really fantastical way that suggests that Fellini or at least his avatar in the movie is just so fucking amazing (laughs) and i start rejecting that after a while it comes across as phony or at the very least off-putting um there are other film critics who have written extensively about eight and a half and i highly recommend you read them all because your takeaway of eight and a half might vary this is definitely the film i think you put it beautifully Mm. it's not that and and we're speaking for ourselves it's not that we don't get the movie it's not like we don't see what's in the movie Mm. it's that ultimately we don't like it we don't think it comes across very well yeah it's off it off-putting is a good word for it it's uh frankly maybe a little uh what's the word i'm looking for well we said self-indulgent self-indulgent i think is the best way to yeah self-indulgent it's self-indulgent to an off-putting degree um, and I think if you see the film and you appreciate that, okay, so here's what the filmmaker did. Here's the context in which it came out. Uh, and you still don't like it. That's valid. There's nothing invalid about that. Sometimes we have to acknowledge the significance or at the very least, the influence of a film that we don't like. Mm. And we will say this film had all of these qualities that it were novel admirable influential push the art form in interesting ways but at the end of the day i don't like watching it Mm. and that's fine (laughs) um and that's fine for eight and a half it's fine for anything Mm. so sometimes sometimes there's a movie you don't like and then you read a film critic and you realize there's an angle you missed Mm. and now you're looking at it from that angle and all of a sudden everything just falls into place and you love the movie now yeah i've read Mm. stuff about eight and a half and every single time i've visited like two or three times and every time i'm like yeah, I just don't, I don't like it. I just don't like <laughs> I, this one. This one, I, they can't all be for me, can yeah. they? Can they? Yeah. They can't. And and this is not to say that I I don't care for self indulgent movies. I'm a big fan of Kenneth Branagh. Sure. Uh, it's not to say that I don't like really oblique movies. I like La Ventura. Um, it's it's I, just I'm okay the, with autobiographical movies. Yeah, all it's, these it's just like, the, the wrong yeah. kind of alchemy in something like Eight and a Half. I don't know. I've, Fellini it, is one of those guys. Yeah. Fellini and Godard. I've never really been captivated by their works. Okay. I appreciate their works. Mm. I understand why people love them. And there's a few significant ones that I haven't seen from both. And maybe those will be the films that are like my gateway Mm. into the world of Fellini or Godard. And maybe I'll revisit the ones that I didn't care for and I'll see them in a whole new light. I allow for that possibility. But for whatever reason, just every single time I've tried to delve into their filmography, I'm like... You're putting a lot of yourself into this, and I get the distinct impression that I wouldn't want to hang out with you. Yeah. And watching your movies feels like I'm hanging out with you, and it's a little annoying, even though obviously you have talent. Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. So again, if this this might not be the useful answer you were hoping for, <laughs> from comes like, hey, what did you guys think of eight and a half? 
it just so happens that neither of us are fans. Hmm. Uh, but there are lots of other film critics out there who've written extensively. We hope you check them out. If you still think that maybe there's something in there that you haven't just connected, like you, you, you get the impression that there's something that in there that you haven't articulated yet. Hmm. That happens sometimes, and you hear someone write about it or use a particular uh, uh, sort of film or film uh, sort of critical philosophy to unlock, and you're like, "Oh, now I see what I missed." Um, that might be the case, but I, yeah. I don't think we're the guys. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm always happy to talk about Eight and a Half, but it is one I, I've been meaning to revisit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen several Fellini films that I actually very much enjoy since I've seen Eight and a Half. I, I like Little Trevita. Uh, I think uh, La Strada is really quite good. Mm-hmm. Knights of Cabiria is excellent. Yeah. Um, eight and a half, still not quite there yet. Maybe I, I will. Maybe someday I'll get there. I remember I was on an episode of Movie Fights mm-hmm. over at Screen Junkies, and uh, it was like a lightning round. And the lightning round was, um, what's the most pretentious movie you can think of? And I instantly said eight and a half. Eight and a half. <laughs> I had like 20 seconds to think about it. Eight and a half. I don't need the time. <laughs> I got this. It's eight and a half. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Moving on. Here is a letter from Mrs. B. Hello, Mrs. B. Hi, Mrs. B. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, uh, my children ages 13 and 21 are, it says 13 through 21, so don't know how many children there are, are huge fans of squirrels and squirrel-related stories. (laughs) We were just talking about squirrels in the latest issue of Holy Batman, uh, this episode of Holy Batman. Our Patreon podcast, Holy Batman. We literally just recorded just an talked episode. talked about squirrels. It's probably gonna episode. it's probably gonna debut after yeah. this letters episode. But yeah, we just went on a rant about squirrels. This is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, uh, my, my my children are huge fans of squirrels and squirrel related stories, as well as superhero movies. We all feel that Squirrel Girl yes. needs a proper introduction in the MCU. Uh, you can understand that we were all intrigued when they saw Flora and Ulysses listed on Disney Plus. Uh, after your review, uh, we won't avoid the movie, but we probably won't tr- try too hard to see it either. Yeah, we both were not fans of that film. Yeah. Obviously, my kids are not the are not the target age group for this movie, thirteen to twenty one. Uh, then again, neither are you, Bibbs and Whitney. Hmm. Have you ever considered getting the opinion of a of Junior McCool for movies <laughs> like this? Sometimes it doesn't matter uh, what an adult critic thinks about a movie if it hits the kids in the right place. Thanks, Mrs. B. Um, this is uh, actually addressing a larger issue that comes up a lot in film criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, target for, demo, really. Yeah, the, the, tar- the idea of the target demo. Uh, first of all, uh, we can't get my son. My son is about to turn six, and he doesn't watch movies. He's not a movie guy. That's not really yeah. this generation's thing. They're into video games. Yeah. Uh, kids That's are, not universal. He, no, might, he, but, might, he might decide he's into something else later. May, but, maybe yeah. so, but films are for old squares like us, and maybe we have to face down a future where uh, kids won't be watching films Less. Every generation yeah. has thought this. Every like, mm-hmm. oh, TV. People aren't going to watch movies. Yeah, anymore. It's well, just going to be TV. We'll see where it goes. We'll, we'll see, see where it goes. goes. And uh, and no, I I have no plan to get him into movies. It's he's going to tell me what he's interested in, not yeah. the other way around. Um, if he was but, interested in movies, would this be something I, you'd be, you would do? I would be. I would happily show him if he was interested in movies, and we could watch movies together, and that would be great. If he wanted to, if like, join wanted... in on the podcast, would you be would you be okay with that, or would you not mm-hmm. want to get him involved in that? No, he he can come on if he wants okay. to. Yeah, yeah. If, he's if got okay, an open yeah. invitation. Obviously, <laughs> he's a cool kid. You've got a yeah. cool kid. But he's going to talk more about Splatoon than he is about movies. Uh, we could do a video game podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he just got into Cooking Simulator, that kind of nice. stuff. Um, but uh, this idea that 
you shouldn't be able to talk about a movie or you should be able to be incredibly sensitive to quote who the movie is for. Mm. Uh, something like Flora and Ulysses might be a good example because a little kid might watch Flora and Ulysses and just be charmed by the squirrel shenanigans. We are adults and we have a little bit more sophisticated, uh, more sophisticated eye mm-hmm. perhaps than a five-year-old audience member. Uh, maybe not. I'm not, I'm not, not saying that's not that necessarily the yeah. case, but theoretically yeah. it's, it's possible. Uh, There's little, also little a lot of really sophisticated do, kids. Let's yeah. Be fair. I was about to yeah. say kid, kids do take a lot from movies more than we give them credit for often. Yeah. Uh, but this idea that you can't trust the opinion of someone who is not within the target demo, I think is a bit of a fallacy. Uh, especially if you're ta- you know, you're dealing with people like us, we're critics, we, we see everything. Mm-hmm. And we have, it's not just a matter of our taste, we kind of understand when a film for children is a good film, yeah. and a film for children is a bad film. Children deserve great movies. Mm-hmm. If I, I don't, feel comfortable recommending something that might be kind of charming or distracting for the kids when there's something that's actually a little bit more emotionally edifying or something a little bit more challenging or something that will give them those same feelings in a little bit more of a sophisticated real world way. Uh, Florian Ulysses is, you know, we talked a lot about how it was a big product placement movie and there's a lot of salesmanship going on in that movie. I wouldn't think that's very healthy for kids. I don't think it's healthy at all. And they're actually, you know, the kids are sophisticated. They're picking up on those messages. So, and even, and even if you don't care, it's the sort of thing you should at least be aware is in there in case you do care. You know, like we we can't, we can't guarantee that you're not. When, again, when you're thinking about like when you hear a critic review a movie for you, yeah, you need to worry about these things. But parents have to at least be, at least consider Mm. what their kids are downloading into their brains, like in the Matrix. And if what they're downloading into their brains is something that they don't think are healthy for them, and this is a decision every parent gets to make for themselves, obviously, mm. um, that's something that a critic is, I think, if, is totally fair game for a critic to discuss. You know, that this ultimately teaches things that you might consider unhealthy for your kid. Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, films that are getting like warnings now on like Disney Plus because mm-hmm. they're, uh, Peter they're Pan d- or Dumbo and racist. Yeah, yeah, they have they have racist caricatures mm-hmm. in those movies. That's, they were that's made, undeniable. Made a long time ago when racism was just more commonplace. Yeah, and or, or, I don't want to say commonplace. I just want to say more uh, more open. Yeah, it was uh, it was a sort of thing where uh, the, the yeah, people were just came out and made these movies mm-hmm. and either they didn't care or someone brought it up and they decided it wasn't worth mm-hmm. changing anything. doing anything and, about yeah. and now you look back at them and at best they're they're a little shameful mm-hmm. uh and at worst they can be outright unwatchable depending on the film and um so tastes in regards to this vary sometimes they shift over time um but regarding target demos i i think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, I do believe that a critic's responsibility is to uh, talk about whatever's in front of them, basically. And mm. but I do believe that it is a critic's responsibility to consider what purpose the film has. Yeah. What is it trying to accomplish? This could be a target demo thing. This could be a genre thing. And like who who is it speaking to, and what is yeah. it saying to them? What is, what is who is the artist trying to reach? Mm. And sometimes the artist is trying to reach everyone. He got the, what they call a four quadrant movie it covers all demographics, all, uh, all male, female, young, and old, we, uh, more or less the four quadrants. I, that's that's the yeah. 
that's the old terminology for it. I think four quadrant is just supposed to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Is the basic formula for it. But when 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 they talk about the four quadrants, yeah. that, those were the quadrants, the four uh, essentially markets they were trying yeah. to, to market. I, I, and to. I consider that that mm. mode outdated, so I was using mm. the term in a more blanket kind of way. Yeah. But fair enough. Yes, exactly. Um, and now I'm starting to lose my train of thought. But like when you're try- mm. some people are trying to make a movie for everybody. Yeah. It's not necessarily always the case. And I think sometimes you see a film review uh, from a critic who clearly isn't on the film's wavelength. Or or they didn't consider a a wider audience. Or a narrower audience, maybe. And so I I find this is often the case in the horror genre. Uh, A lot of times, movies that people who are considered themselves horror fans love don't get good reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. There's, There's some that do. But there's a lot of them that just end up like just barely under a splat. Some of them are panned outright. Mm-hmm. And that's often because I find often the critics who are discussing horror movies aren't necessarily aware of the depth of the horror genre. And I don't mean necessarily like, you know, the deeper meaning of the horror genre per se. I mean like the fact that the horror genre is full of subgenres and mm-hmm. sub subgenres and highly specific uh, uh, sort of yeah. audiences. And sometimes there are people out there who see absolute brilliance in a movie other people are perfectly eager to or perfectly willing to just dismiss as violent. Mm. And for me, that's always frustrated me. And it's one of the reasons why I became a critic was I would see people, even people I respected, like Siskel and Ebert, reviewing a horror movie and mm. dismissing it. Yeah. And, and, it, there's, it, and it frustrated me because it struck me as a lack of curiosity. Uh, because when yeah. I see a movie I don't like, my first thought uh. isn't this sucks. My first thought is, what if it's great and I'm missing it? Mm. And that's when I start thinking to myself, what what is not hitting me in this movie? And how could it maybe be hitting me in another way? And sometimes I find that way. Mm. And I get really excited. And the movie just blossoms. And sometimes I don't. Yeah. And sometimes it's... I find out later that I did miss something, but I tried. Well, you know? So, I, think you, I think you have to try. You have to try well, to find often, the way into the movie. Uh, I... Often I find I miss something and I don't care. I still think it sucks. That's also um, fair. Yeah, right. and and yes, I do walk away from movies thinking, "Wow, that sucked." Um, I'm talking about while I'm watching it. Usually, oh, yeah. by the time the movie's over, mm-hmm. I've got a pretty good idea how I feel. Sometimes I need yeah. to think about it, but usually I got a pretty good idea. And meanwhile, sometimes when I'm ten minutes into the emoji movie and I'm like, going, <laughs> "Oh no." It's just going to be more of this, isn't there? Yeah, I think 10 minutes yeah. is is for the emoji movie is enough time for me to realize, "Okay, um, how how am I going to look at this?" No, nothing. Okay, I got good. nothing. I have gonna, no gonna, way of looking at this movie that okay, makes it good. Going to keep an open mind. That, yeah. that that's well, your that's your message. And you okay, to, and you have to keep even if you're even if you're like gripping, like you're grinding your teeth. Mm. You have to allow that it's possible the movie could turn it around. Great example of this: Paper mm. Towns. That's right. the The first act of Paper Towns, we we were about to write it off. It's so insufferable. It, it, it seemed to be celebrating a kind of. Um, abusive relationship dynamic and it's something and 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 in a way that we've seen other movies do and it comes across as incredibly naive or ignorant or sexist in some cases uh and i was like oh this movie and sure enough the ending of the movie turned it around yeah and made that opening work from by look by actually literally saying you were looking at that from the wrong perspective and i'm like Good for oh, you. You actually had, a, had something to say yeah, here. Yeah, th- you turned this shit around. I was not happy with this movie, and now I like that movie a lot. Mm. Good. And so you have to give it all a shot. And mm. that's also true for kids' movies. A lot of critics mm. will dismiss movies that are made for very young audiences outright. You know, it's mm. like, oh, it's for little kids. It's fine. You know, it, they'll, they'll enjoy it. Mm. 
and I find that just as bad as assuming that it's that it sucks. Mm-hmm. You have well, to actually well, try if, to engage with it. Well, if you try to engage with it and you find it sucks, then you write that in your review. Exactly, but uh, but sometimes it's easy to just go, oh, it's harmless, it's fine, I don't mm-hmm. care. And I don't think yeah, that's the, healthy. Uh, I think you need to engage with every yeah, work of art as much as mm-hmm. you can. Um. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's frustrating when somebody doesn't. And uh, it's it's frustrating uh, when you write a review of something you don't like mm. and you're accused of not understanding it or you uh, or uh, as this letter kind of uh, implies and this kind of rubs me the wrong way is um you you gave it a bad review because it's not for you. And mm. I've long maintained that a film is for anybody who can buy a ticket to it. Yeah. And if you can go to it and you're not going to enjoy it, then that's something that you have to say. Yeah. Uh, and, but this is uh, operating off of the assumption that you did try to engage very actively with the film and mm. you found nothing for it. Not necessarily for you personally, just not for a, a, an audience, yeah. any, any particular audience. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's a, it's a little bit insulting to imply that I haven't given it thought that I'm just sort of tossing off my opinion as if I haven't given it consideration. I want to, I want to make it clear. I don't think the letter writer was saying that at all. No, 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 but but this this is, it's a conversation that gets held. It it sparked, sparked something in me because I I run into this a lot as a critic. It's like, Oh no, you just didn't get it or it's not for you. It, it, first of all, it is for me because I was able to go see it. (laughs) And secondly, uh, okay, maybe I'm not the target demo, but I'm broad minded enough to understand what this film is trying to say and who it's trying to say it to. And also just, and this is specific to you in this case, uh, you are a parent parent, and you do get to, to actually make decisions about what you're comfortable with your kid watching Mm -hmm. and you can decide what is, what you value and what you don't Mm -hmm. in those terms. Uh, But regarding the email itself, the email itself was a very, was a very good question. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that um, I think a lot of critics have to ask themselves. Yeah. Did I not like this because it genuinely doesn't work or did I not like it because I don't understand it because it's not for me mm. or because I don't understand the genre very well yeah. or because maybe I'm out of touch? And I think about this a lot when I think about like movies for teens more than little kids. Like, yeah, is, what, what's their lingo like? What's mm. their what's the reality of being an American teenager right now? Because it's probably very different than my life as a teenager was in the mm. 1990s just because of dramatic social upheavals and mm. incredibly, you know, traumatizing series of world events, whether it's 9-11, the economic yeah, collapse, the pandemic. Where, uh, where are younger people coming from now that, and what is this speaking to that generation? And you have to know a little bit about where that yeah. generation's coming from in order to understand a lot of or that you, stuff. Or you just have to take it mm. on faith that the filmmakers know what they're talking about. Yeah. And that concerns me way more mm. than like reviewing something like Arctic Dogs yeah. and saying, well, little kids like it. I, uh, I'm now, more concerned about not knowing knowing what it's like to be young, yeah, my, a young uh, adult right now, because I think that's a very different life. Yeah, my, my, my defensive rant having been ranted. Um, it does happen though, where people do fling off, uh, sort of half baked dismissals of movies that they haven't considered. Yeah. And, uh, and that can lead to a lot of trouble. Um, a, a lot of young men who aren't professional critics going to see something like promising young woman mm-hmm. and not really getting it. It's like, yeah, well, f- first of all, it, because that, that person probably saying, oh, well, all films are for young men. What, what is this doing for a, a young male audience like myself? Yeah. It's like, well, okay, that's when people start cracking out. That's not for you. Well, it's important to remember that movies it's, are it's, trying it's to... It's for you, but it's trying to give you a new perspective. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing. It's important to remember that movies aren't necessarily mm. designed to appeal to you specifically. Mm. They're, they're, a lot of them are designed to 
introduce you to a new perspective or a new person or a new era or whatever they're supposed to, they're trying to expand your horizons beyond your insular world yeah and this is something that we even talked about a lot in terms of like um sort of fan theories with stuff like wandavision mm. and how uh people have a lot were really like very fascinated and had all these theories about oh mephisto is they, they in wanted it. more more crossover yeah, stuff well, yeah well all of these things are going to be super duper important and it's like you're basically creating this universe where if the thing wasn't made exactly to your specifications, it's going to be disappointing to you. You need to let the thing be the thing. And mm-hmm. then you can dislike it all you want based on those parameters. But you can't judge something based on what you assume it w- it should be mm-hmm. if they're trying to appeal to you specifically. Yeah. you got to let it be its own thing. And you have to be open to the possibility that a new thing that you didn't predict is also cool. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the case, but you got to be open to it. And I think that's what it boils down to is film critics have to be open to everything. You have to be open to the possibility that something that didn't look cool at the, at the outset or didn't look interesting at the outset is fascinating. Yeah. And you have to be open to the possibility that something that looked like it was going to appeal to you perfectly is a total letdown yeah. and just didn't work. And you have to be open to the idea that a kid's movie is absolutely something that is worthy of criticism on a mature level. Mm. And you have to be open to the idea that a horror movie that seems like pure violence is actually operating on a level you don't understand. Mm. You have to be curious. That's like one of the most important things you can do. You don't need to know everything about film history in order to start being a film critic. You cannot be incurious about it. You have to be excited to learn more Mm. and to find more perspectives Mm. and to engage in more of the world and the art Mm. than you anyone ever has before that's the goal like i want to learn so uh, much the advice i want to give to uh in this regard and just to every teenager in general don't uh, don't assume you know everything never (laughs) don't don't assume you know anything Mm. that's where wisdom comes from one of my my, i I think uh bill and ted's excellent adventure Mm. the greatest wisdom Mm. comes from knowing that you know nothing that's us. <laughs> <laughs> so they call Socratic wisdom. Exactly. Uh, I, 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 I happen to stand by that. All right. Th- thank you for that letter. It's a great letter. It's a good conversation. Yeah, we need to I keep having it. Brought up something. Yeah. A deeper conversation. Yeah. It, we uh, went on a tangent. Uh, but yeah. Here's a letter from Brian. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. Uh, dearest Bibbs and WITNEY, pronounced Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> um, I just watched the Mad Animated Special. This refers to our Cancelled Too Soon episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was 13 when this special aired. I don't remember seeing it, but I was buying Mad Magazine at the time. I know I had the issue with The Odd Father in it. Nice. Um, I have a couple things to say, uh, but I'll address the elephant in the room. My first reaction was that it was a, oh, this is about the Tarzan bit. Okay, if you uh, haven't listened to our Cancelled, yeah. r- real quick point of reference here. Mm-hmm. We recently, like last week, did an episode of Cancelled Too Soon our show where we review TV shows that lasted one season or less about a failed pilot for an animated sketch comedy series based on Mad Magazine. And we yeah. talk all about the history of Mad Magazine and that show. Uh, this The episode is filled with a bunch of sketches pulled right from the pages. And also a few little sketches, including one sketch mm. involving Tarzan that we, mm. Whitney and I had a bit of a debate on mm. where what is the purpose of the joke. And I ultimately argued that I find it to be simply racist in its construct. Mm. 
And when, uh, when, when I, you, when I, you I found me it, an inarticulate attempt to say something a little bit more interesting. You know, I, in fact, uh, I've, I've been thinking about it a little bit more, and I think it's actually very specifically anti-racist, but we'll get to that. I just um, don't think, I don't, I my, think it's uh, going for that, it doesn't come across. That's yeah, all okay. Um, my first reaction was that it was a man and not a woman who swung past Tarzan, but I think you can make a case either way. Uh, if you look at Tarzan's expression, he's surprised and bewildered at what he sees coming, and what he sees coming is a black person. I would describe that black person as confident and assured, particularly the way he or she says, mm-hmm, as a counterpoint to Tarzan's yell. So Tarzan is the one with the problem. However, I don't think it's clear we're supposed to think that it's a bad thing. What I think is, um, what I think is that this was an attempt at a topical social commentary, but what is the comment? Uh, there's another white flight joke in the show. Um, the, the, I think the point of that, that bit was to satirize white flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not there to placate racists. Uh, it's, I don't know. How do you satirize the concept of white flight? You put it in, uh, in the hands of a beloved comic strip character and Tarzan was a beloved comic strip character, uh, in the seventies, less so the, so the, the, was off the, so the premise of the whole joke is that Tarzan is racist. Yes. That, that and Tarzan would like, okay. Instead of Tarzan picture, pretty Mickey, thin. picture it was, it was Mickey mouse. Something I'm not a little saying, bit more innocent I'm not saying and that childish. I'm not saying that they're sacred or yeah. anything. I'm just saying. They're, I think so that's I think that's the in, start of a joke and not the actual. They're, they're I, think, I think it's a lazy joke. They're introducing uh, a, a shocking, uh, shocking bit of racism into something of kind of innocent. It's a comic juxtaposition. I think it works fine. I disagree with uh, that. Anyway, uh, there's another white flight joke in the show. Uh, the one at the Kaputnik trailer camp. One person says there's another camp that's better. Everybody moves into their trailers, uh, and one person remaining says there goes the neighborhood. It's kind of a literal joke. Yeah. There goes the neighborhood. Neighborhood was a response from white people when a black family moved into their neighborhood. Uh, well, that is racist white people. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the true meaning of this uh, was never lost. There goes the neighborhood pretty much became a catchphrase and is used as a punchline in plenty of jokes at the time. Uh, this is a perfectly race free example. Mad's politics was never, ever pro right wing. This is true. Yeah. As Whitney has pointed out, and it was our entry level guide to subversiveness. An illustration of this is the car manufacturer who has made it perfectly clear that he doesn't care about customers or quality only money. He's such a twisted, rapacious greedhead that he calls the ultimate American capitalist and captain of industry, Henry Ford, as a commie radical. Yeah. But back to the Tarzan cartoon, the question at hand makes me think of Archie Bunker. Back in the day, I always assumed people like Archie Bunker didn't watch All in the Family because it was putting people like them down. It wasn't until decades later that I heard that the viewership of All in the Family had plenty of Archie Bunkers cheering their hero on. So I think the cartoon uh, as upholding this attitude of there goes the neighborhood and it's too bad that what this world has come to. But given Mad's history when it comes to sociopolitical issues, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and hope that they were going something like the times are changing, white man. Too bad you don't like it. Mm. Uh, as to the humor in general, I think the show illustrates that Mad took way too much time setting up a joke and way too much time explaining the payoff. If those jokes were dialogue in a screenplay, you'd cut about three quarters of the words in the second draft. Yeah. I think this could be why Bibbs was thinking that maybe Mad wasn't that funny after all. It wasn't that the ideas weren't funny, it's that the jokes were telegraphed and then reviewed. It seems to me that the earliest days of Mad, like when Harvey Kurtzman was there, this wasn't the case. Uh, do you ever read, like, early Mad magazine? A little, Yeah. yeah. Uh, Whitney mentioned the voice talent. Some of the voices sound familiar, but I only recognized one of the names. My guess is the show was done in New York. And because these were New York-based voice actors and the June forays were all in Los Angeles, or maybe the talent used was less costly, or both, uh, they don't have many credits on IMDb, and some of the cartoons they worked on were schlock, a word I learned from Mad. 
Uh, anyway, that's my two cents. Mm. Cheap. <laughs> you, you keep them coming. I'll keep listening, Brian. Thanks, um, Brian. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. Mm. I don't want to. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here mm. again because we had a long conversation about it on the show. Um, I don't think any of us are going to know exactly what the makers of the show mm. intended with that bit unless we find them and interview them. So that's mm. that's pure speculation. What I will say is this. If we want to give them benefit of the doubt, and I don't, I don't assume benefit of the doubt. I don't. I want the thing to tell me whether or not that seems warranted, but it didn't come across. <clears throat> if it was intended to be a satire of white flight, then we're running into a situation where because the joke of the joke's construct, uh, it's like that Archie Bunker situation where people who are racist could still find that joke funny, but on the racist level. Yeah. That's the part where I think it's a badly told joke mm. either way. Yeah. Well, we've. Uh, and I think that's bad. I think it's a bad joke. There, I, I, there was something that uh, I, I had to sort of realize when I was watching shows like um, like South Park or, or Family Guy mm. in, in particular, or a, a lot of uh, shows that would use. Uh, and this was really big in like the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, a lot of c- comedy at the time was uh, very based in shock. Yeah. So like shock humor, surprise humor. We're and gross uh, you out. We're going yeah, to say gro- something profane. There's a lot of yeah, gross humor, a lot of profane humor, and a lot of really profane and even racist language was used. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I was like in college or just out of college, I had assumed that the audience was sophisticated enough to know that when this shocking language is being used, they're sending up those attitudes. They're yeah. using it as a shock. Be- they know it's shocking because they know that those things are patently indecent yeah and that's where and you know that's where the surprise comes in and one would hope a little bit of a, a cathartic laugh to sort of laugh yeah. off how shocking these things again are. you're giving the storytellers yeah. the benefit of the doubt that they're yeah. saying these things for a purpose that but, is uh, hateful yeah but it's it took me a while to realize that using shocking language and like racist language and sexist language for shock humor sounds exactly the same as the real thing mm-hmm. and uh exactly it, it like it, it so I, I was giving a lot of these humor, uh, a lot of this humor, the benefit of the doubt, without really realizing that it was doing some genuine harm. Well, it's at, 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 mm. at even beyond that. Mm. It's just by putting this kind of shock humor, because we had a lot of mm. shows doing to varying degrees of success that kind of shock humor. Mm. It normalizes that shock humor as well, and it makes that sort of a commonplace aspect of the language. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it, uh, and it doesn't, and it undermines the idea that a lot of the things that are being sent up. When, and again, everything is fodder for satire, but we do have to think about how we do it. Yeah, and, and sometimes and you, you send it up in such a way that you end up undermining the attempt at satire. Yeah, and and there's a way to do it. I'm oh, sure. I'm, I'm not going to say that you know humor is is pretty broad, and I think yeah. it's okay to make blue or off color jokes. Uh, yeah. but, Blazing Saddles still works. But yeah, for example, Blazing Saddles example. Is, is a wonderful example. Um, I think Big Mouth is unbelievably vulgar, uh, and yet it's actually a very wise, knowing, and kind of morally responsible show at yeah. its core. You can be ethically uh, shocking. Mm-hmm. People forget, shocking is not in, in and of itself a great goal. Mm. It's a means to an end. And if you have a good end, and you're doing it for the right reasons, and you're being sensible and ethical about the way that you present what is shocking, mm. you can do great things with it. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's every, it's, it's a weapon and it has to be wielded responsibly. Mm. And sometimes it's not, or sometimes it's not in the aggregate and we need to be conscious of that. And I think it's a fair critique. Yeah. And I, yeah. again, at best, 
I don't think this joke is a good joke. I don't think it okay. works. And I think it, at best, it functions as a racist joke if you want to perceive it that way, yeah. which means that if it's mm. intended as satire or to undermine the concept of racism, mm. then it failed. Okay. Um, I, I don't think so. I saw it. I, 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 like I didn't, it, it's, it's a little confusingly told, but it, you know, upon reflection, I understood what the joke was and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm convinced it does work as a satire better than it does to placate to any kind of racist attitude. Mm-hmm. And especially given the, the broader context of what I know about Mad Magazine. I can appreciate that. Yeah. But again, you got to work with what the show is. Yeah. And for me, that show is its own thing. Okay. Um, All right, moving on. Here's a letter from Dr. Dane. Hello, Dr. Dane. Hello. Uh, good day, mates. I am from Melbourne, Australia. Nice. And I've been a devoted listener to, of yours since the B-Movies podcast. Wow. About the Friday the 13th franchise back in 2016. Side uh. note, you need to do that again. Uh, <laughs> I would love to do that again. I'm I'd sure be, we could. I would be yeah. happy to revisit that franchise. Uh, I am a breast and ovarian cancer genetics and geo- genomics researcher. Wow. Uh, and something you said the other day excited me. <laughs> what did we say? If, <laughs> I'm very I, curious. I know nothing what, about, what did we say? Nothing about genomics. Um, okay. Uh, you asked if entertainment overall is rotten or fresh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, yeah. this was an, uh, an idea I, I actually pitched to people I knew at Rotten Tomatoes at the time. The, the single master aggregate of uh, of everything on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, what? where is all of entertainment right now? Is it rotten or fresh? Uh, well, with some clever repurposed bi- bioinformation bioinformatic analysis, I managed to extract the critic scores for all films on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my God, really? Along with the combined critic and user scores on the internet movie database. What? Uh, That's oh amazing. Oh my gosh. Gosh, I, I hope you didn't spend too much time that on this. That sounds um, like, oh yeah. With regards to Rotten Tomatoes, they had a critic ratings for close to 17,000 movies with an average of 62 reviews per show. The overall data shows... 63.77% of entertainment is fresh. You know? <laughs> and 36.23% is rotten. 63% is just above the freshness threshold, according to the Rotten Tomatoes metric. Which means that art is mostly average. Mostly average. It's like all <laughs> slightly above that. You know what? That, it, that, that actually, actually makes me feel better. That pans out, doesn't it? That makes me feel mm. a little better, actually. Mm. It really, really does. Yeah. Uh, IMDb, IMDb has a lot more entries and votes with over 1.1 million movies and TV shows listed and an average of 1,001 reviews per show. The average rating for entertainment on IMDb was (laughs) 6.88, consistent with Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) 63.7% for Rotten Tomatoes and 6.88 average. That's out of 10. Out of 10 on on IMDb. That's about right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm actually surprised... It's it's as consistent on IMDb because uh, Rotten Tomatoes the the general consensus at least among critics is that you have to have seen the movie mm. IMDb there's no such criteria and a lot of movies yeah, a lot have of a ton the, of ratings and they haven't even been made yet yeah the, the ratings aren't from yeah. professionals they're just from viewers yeah that's interesting okay yeah. wow enjoy the data and if you ever decide to travel to Australia I'll have a cold beer waiting for your gills thank you uh, love you two goobers Doctor Dane I always wanted to go to Australia I might take up on that someday but um, I'm, I'm not a beer drinker but if there's some liquor okay I'll have a cocktail I, I love a good beer uh-huh. I. I I don't i'm not a heavy beer drinker but i do enjoy them mm-hmm. uh but uh wow I, a i can't believe someone actually did that <laughs> uh that's really cool of you and thank you for that i'm glad you were intrigued enough to do so and i really hope you didn't put yourself out yeah. but i'm really excited mm. to have this number i'm not gonna lie <laughs> i love this i'm, I, I'm just this gonna, is a great I'm just number gonna, we should like tweet that and just put it just the number 
that yeah. this is the average of what all entertainment is giving us right now. That's mm. truly phenomenal, and I really, 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 really love that a lot. And we're, yeah, I'm going to make a note here mm. to tweet that out because that's <laughs> that makes me really happy. I'm not going to lie; it makes me really happy to know Some, that somebody actually figured that. Well, th- yeah, thank you, Doctor Dane. Uh, we want we should buy you a beer. That's, yeah, that was, we really that, should. That's what we need to do. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do one more. All right, one more. Uh, here's a letter from Alex. Hi, Alex. Uh, Alex, the geek librarian. Ooh. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I found myself delving into Hoopla while working from home and had an impromptu double feature. Uh, Zoom and a Roboros picture in which amateur comic book creator who works in a Canadian sex doll factory writes a comic book about a movie director. These segments in the film are animated. Who okay. is creating a film about a woman who is writing a novel about the comic book creator. Okay. That sounds like a that, lot. That's fascinating. Okay. And a film called Paper Man, in which a mentally unstable novelist is tormented by writer's block and his childhood imaginary friend while having a platonic but questionable relationship with a young woman. These inspired me to rewatch the slightly less whimsical but deeply movie Door in the Floor, unfortunately not streaming anywhere. And it got me thinking, why are there so, mon- so many movies about writers? Mm. I know there's an oft-repeated adage about writing what you know, so with people with the skill, courage, and luck to be professional writers, you would assume that these films would be less accessible, but if done right, I feel that these examples uh, are, this subgenre can pr- uh I feel that these examples can prove that the jub- subgenre can provide powerful emotions and texts. How do you feel about films about writers or their cousins movies about filmmakers? Can you recommend any standouts? Thanks as always. Keep up the good works. Alex, the geek library. Uh, that is a great question. And you, 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 you kind of took the initial response. Uh, why are there so many films about writers? There's a lot of books about writers too. Stephen King has kind of cornered that market. Um, and to an extent it is right. What you know, uh, the people who write stories are writers. So sometimes they write about writers because they really know what that's like, or at least I think they do. My, uh, my, I think the, the ultimate example of, uh, where I'm seeing the screenwriter and not the story Mm. is a film called Limitless. Uh, it's a Bradley Cooper film. Oh, we've talked about this. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's about a, a young man who moves into an apartment. He finds a bag of pills little clear tablets. And it turns out these are uh, tab- tablets that sort of hypercharge your brain. They unlock you, the full potential yeah. of the human consciousness. Yeah, so all of a sudden you're you're really alert and you're accessing all the memories that you've had throughout your whole life. You remember everything and you're essentially becoming much, much smarter. Yeah. And you now also have the drive to complete all of these projects that have been on your plate. Yeah, like, you can oh, write a whole novel in a weekend, that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. If that's not a fantasy of a frustrated screenwriter with writer's block, <laughs> I've never seen one. <laughs> Golly, like I can yeah. just see the screenwriter hunched over the computer, and, and he or she is just has their hand, his head in their hands, just saying, "I'm smarter than this. I know. If only there was like a, a pill or something, I could take a pill, like a ca- or drink a caffeine drink, and just have all of these things flow out." Wait a minute, I'll just write a story about that. Yeah, and that's actually a good idea. Is, is, but it, it's not. I don't think it's a good movie. It's a good, well, but it's a good idea. It's a good idea. I'm not sure how you make a story out of that. I don't think the screenwriter figured that out either. Not quite. No. And of course, the film adaptation is a pretty good example of that. It's about mm. trying trouble, having trouble adapting a screenplay. Well, I think adaptation is a good example because adaptation. Too many movies about writers. Too many stories about writers. In my experience, in my taste, uh, are a little too self congratulatory for my taste. We just talked about Eight and a Half. Mm. That's a very self-congratulatory film. That's a film that that's a film that absolutely believes in the genius of Federico Fellini, <laughs> from writer director Federico Fellini, and that's one of the reasons why I find it 
uh, just unpleasant to watch. Mm. I find it annoying. Um, I've, I've lost track of how many movies I've seen about writers, storytellers, and it ends with the protagonist saying, and I wrote this book about it. You know? <laughs> and sometimes it works. Like, Stand By Me makes that work a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example mm. where they actually played that off in some way. I can't off the top mm. of my head. There aren't a lot of good examples. I find it usually rather self-congratulatory and cloying. Um, when, when you got a biography of a writer, it's a little different. But yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. But uh, in any case, um, you're what you're what you're doing is you're telling a story about a storyteller, and I think that if you are willing to look at the warts and all aspect of storytelling, which adaptation does, mm-hmm. if you're willing to look at uh, the extent to which the world of a writer is a world of creativity, mm-hmm. and sometimes that leads to uh, positivity, and sometimes it leads to negativity, sometimes it leads to horror. Uh, there's a lot of really good stories about uh, living in the creative world mm-hmm. of an individual or a group. Um, but um, on some level, I think we just have to acknowledge that there are certain trades, certain jobs or professions that attract a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're obvious. You look at television. Doctors, lawyers, cops, or detectives. <laughs> These are jobs in which interesting things happen oh, to people and, uh, every and, day. And uh, Starfleet officers. Really, really interesting job. I'm gonna I'm going to downgrade that to military. <laughs> okay. Alright. But it's also um, a thing where again, conflict is built into the profession. Hmm. Life or death situations, uh, strange moral uh, uh, quandaries. Uh, interesting people just wander into your into your life and then wander out again, never to be seen again. These are the kinds of professions that are inherently, uh, uh, at least have the inherent potential to be interesting. Hmm. Writers, what I find with writers is that when you're writing a story about a writer, what you have at the heart of it is a character who is either creating a world, in which case you're dealing probably with some sort of fantasy element, Hmm. or you have someone who is eager to learn, eager to explore eager to become a part of something, eager to participate, someone who is trying to expand their horizons. And that can be a useful tool. Mm. Um, but I, oftentimes there, there's actually rules. I, I remember um, when I was working as a development intern, like out of film school, uh, I was told by people who were working in development uh, that films about filmmaking, films about Hollywood, mm they're generally avoided by a lot of people who make movies because people at home either can't relate or they don't want to relate. They don't want to learn how the sausage gets made. Yeah. They are here to they are, well, A lot of people go to a movie for some form of escapism and they don't want to hear that it sucks. That's not what we're here for. It doesn't appeal to a lot of people. <laughs> and so it's actually very rare for a movie about movie making to be super successful. Mm. It happens, but it's rare. Mostly, they seem to be made for a very small group of people. Yeah, um, and I've heard uh, Mank described that way. Mm, that, yeah, that 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 is a film for uh, either industry insiders or people who know a lot about industry insiders, or people who know a lot about mm. classic film at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, not just about classic film, but the way films were made. Like, not just seeing a lot of movies, but understanding like studio dynamics and the personalities who were in charge of that kind of stuff at the time. Sure. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a blow in Manx's uh, 
to make detriment. There are other things I have uh, problems with about that movie. Yeah, that's not my problem with the yeah. movie. But uh, yeah, they're uh, sometimes feel a little too insular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, there are great movies about making movies. Uh, see Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. Yeah, we did. That's we, the great one. We did a whole uh, yeah. episode of the Iron List about, uh, about a year mov- or so movies ago. about movies. Yeah, it was yeah. the best movies about movies. I'm trying to remember everything that was on that list, but offhand, I think we both one or both of us put Living in Oblivion on there, mm. which is a movie about the making of a fictional, uh, a fictional independent film in the 1990s during that very specific moment in independent film. Mm. Um, it's a little on the nose, but it's everyone I know who's ever seen it, who's made independent movies. And this includes me. I've been on the sets of a lot of independent films in various forms. Uh, everyone's like, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what it was like. Mm. Um, so that one's really really good. We recently reviewed and critically acclaimed my I think it was my favorite movie on that list. I, I think I put it on there now. Uh, my favorite movie about movie making is The Stuntman with mm. Peter O'Toole, which I, I only saw for the first time recently, and it's great. It's so damn good. It's really <laughs> bitter, but it understands mm. the power of cinema. And it's really clever, and it works. It's mm. a really really good film. Um, again, some films are using this in a sort of a magical way. You look at Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, which is about the too. making of a Friday the Thirteenth of a mm, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, making of a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel that is also a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Hmm. It's almost too clever to work, and yet it works beautifully. So that's a, that's another uh, personal favorite of mine. Um, any others that sort of pop into your mm. head? I know it's, it's there's a long history of it. Um, I mean, not, not not without falling back on like the. Really well-known ones. I recently watched uh, for I, I I do a show with uh, Kristen Lopez um, uh, called Based on a True Podcast. It's for mm-hmm. the Ticklish Business uh, Patreon, which you should totally check out. Um, and uh, we do about once a month uh, a movie that is about how Hollywood. We, we review a movie that's about how Hollywood uh, tells stories about itself. Mm-hmm. And so we've done films like Hollywood Land and LA Confidential and uh, various biopics. And uh, we recently did a movie from W.C. Fields called Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Okay. It's a not very well-known movie today, um, but it stars W.C. Fields as himself pitching a movie that mm. is most definitely not going to get made. And it's really <laughs> meta. It's really meta. It's also... That's the premise of movie 43. Yeah, it kind of is, actually. <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I Never Give a Sucker an Even Break isn't a great movie. It's got mm. great moments. There are bits in it that are really inspired. Mm. Uh, it's also like of its time, so like there's some sexism in there, and that sucks. But mm. um, it's it's pretty novel, and it's pretty. And so that's it's just a movie I really wasn't thinking of when we did that original Iron List, and it's one that I probably would have at least given an honorable mention to uh, mm. now. So that's an interesting one. Uh, but it's tricky. Again, you want to you want to use the storytelling medium of your choice uh, to introduce people to new worlds and perspectives. Mm. But sometimes that perspective is well-worn territory, isn't it? And you might struggle to find a way to make that interesting. And there's a danger zone when you're writing about something that is potentially, at least subconsciously, semi-autobiographical, mm. that you're going to end up being self-congratulatory or just in your own head. Yeah, And that's a danger. And it can happen, and we've seen it happen. Uh, but basically, that's that's all I got. Basically. Okay. I, I think it's a lot of people just not even thinking about it half the time. <laughs> Um, anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail. Thank you so much to everybody who wrote in. What a 
fascinating crop of emails <laughs> we had this week. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. We really appreciate the time you take to not just listen to our shows, but also try to uh, contribute. Uh, we're sorry we can't read every single email, but uh, we sure would like to if we could. <laughs> we just have nothing. We'd have time for nothing else. Yeah. Um, if you want to write in, we might read your email in an upcoming episode. Uh, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I myself am at William Viviani. I myself am at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of exclusive shows, some of which we discussed in this week's episode, uh, but shows about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, uh, Disney. We do commentary tracks. We have a lot of exclusive stuff over there at the mm. Patreon page. And you're also welcome to leave comments there on our various uh, shows and programs as well. Um, and uh, also, don't forget, we have a soap shop. Etsy.com Search for Salt Cat Soap We just released A whole bunch of new soaps Designed by my Incredible Wife and partner uh, Michelle M. Lapis da Silva She has Made some really awesome Designs for Marge Including one That's a birthday cake soap That was her gift to me For my birthday This last week And uh, the soap is amazing It smells just like Birthday cake It's a really really good Soap as well Don't eat it It's soap But it will smell good And uh, that's available To all and uh, to everyone who has already purchased some, I hope you enjoy them. Uh, so that's Salt Cat Soap. They're on Instagram and Twitter at Salt Cat Soap. And uh, we'll be back next week with more We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>